Morning, Firewell friends and family. It's good to see all of you and those of you who are joining us online. If I've not had the pleasure to meet you yet, my name is Pastor Adrian Pina, and I have the opportunity to serve as the interim pastor here at Firewell Bible Fellowship. And we are really glad that you are here this morning. And I'm really glad to not have ice. Any of y'all glad to not have that either? All right, I'm glad for that as well. As a person who is from the Northeast and has seen plenty of his share of blizzards and nor'easters in his life, I am very happy to never see the white stuff. So, uh, you know, people get joyous when they see it. I am very happy for it to remain away. So I am uh, happy that we are out of Ice-mageddon and that now we are back to it and we can join together today and be able to fellowship. So we are going to jump back into the book of Esther this morning. I hope that you are enjoying our trek through the book of Esther. And we are almost at the ends of the book of Esther. Uh, and we have covered a lot of ground in this narrative, this very interesting and intriguing story. So just as a way of review, last week we looked at, uh, we talked about courage and having courage in the face of fear and exhibiting faith as Esther, we looked at Esther chapter 5 when Esther finally makes the decision to go before the king. And we see that she was tasked with an impossible task. And that impossible task, uh, this was her mission if she should choose to accept, was this. She had to speak to the king uh, and she didn't know if she would be accepted or if she would be rejected. And for her to present herself unannounced to the king and he didn't extend out that golden scepter means that she would be executed and that she basically would lose her life. She had to make her appeal to the king and in doing so she was confessing that she was a Jew. She was going to bring this charge and in this story today as the narrative basically the climax kind of happens and now we see kind of the, toward the end of the story, we're going to see that finally she's going to come out the closet culturally speaking and she's going to make it known to the king. But in doing so, coming before the king, she was going to make this confession that basically she was a Jew which had not been revealed yet, that she was lying all along. Esther had to get the king to revoke an irrevocable law, which remember we've talked about the law of the Medes and Persians. And the law of the Medes and Persians said that when the king executed an edict, that that edict cannot be revoked. And we know that previously in the book of Esther, the edict had been issued that the Jews would die on the 12th month. And they would be executed because of the nefarious plot of Haman. And then lastly, Esther has to stand up directly to Haman, who's the most second powerful man in the most powerful nation of the world at that time. All of this should she choose to accept it. And in this story, our one true statement from last week was that incredible faith requires incredible courage. We see in Esther that she has to make an incredible decision. And she has to decide within herself if she is going to go through with this. And she finally makes the decision in chapter 4. We see this start to turn in her as Mordecai is kind of convincing her. And then Mordecai says, has God not put you in a place of position for such a time as this? The kind of key thesis statement of the whole entire book. And then Esther finally comes to her senses and says, well, whatever's going to be done to me, let it be done to me. And then we see the execution of this plan going forward. She exhibits incredible faith, which requires incredible courage. In this book, there have been two key theological themes that I'm going to remind you of every single week because they are going to play a very vital role even in today's uh, story, in today's part of the narrative. And these two key theological uh, themes that we need to remember throughout this series is number one, the sovereignty of God. 
The sovereignty of God speaks to God's comprehensive rule over all of creation. It speaks to his authority. It speaks to his power. It speaks to the scope of his authority. Because as creator, he has right rule and power over all the totality of creation. And so this speaks to the extent of his power and then how magnificent and powerful he actually is. The providence of God, which is the other side to that coin, speaks to God's gracious activity throughout history. How does God actually enact within human history, in time and space, and act out in his power, his providence? That's uh, his uh, sovereignty. That's what providence is. So as God is working behind the scenes, as God then enacts into human history, that's when we see providence take place. When God comes on the scene, as he is enacting within power, as he can as the creator of the universe. I mentioned that throughout the book of Esther, the, the title or the name God never appears. And yet, this is one of the most clearest books in all of scripture that talk about the idea of God's sovereignty and God's providence. So let me begin today by telling you a quick story. The early American Indians had a unique practice of training young braves. On the night of a boy's 13th birthday, after learning how to hunt, scout, and fishing skills, he was put to one final test. He was placed in a dense forest to spend the entire night alone, 13 years old. Until then, he had never been away from the security of the family and of the tribe. But on this night, he was blindfolded and taken several miles away. When he took off the blindfold, he was in the middle of a thick woods and he was terrified. Every time a twig snapped, he visualized the wild animal ready to pounce. After what seemed like an eternity, dawn broke and the first rays of sunlight entered into the interior of the forest. Looking around, the boy saw flowers, trees, and the outline of a path. Then to his utter astonishment, looking at the horizon, he beheld the figure of a man standing just a few feet away, armed with a bow and with an arrow. It was his father. His father had been watching him all night long. Here's my point. God protects his own. One of the greatest things that we know about in Scripture, one of the greatest images that we have is that God is Father. And so as a good father, God's not an absentee father. I know that some of you may have not had a relationship with your earthly father, and so sometimes we project, obviously, what is this being experienced in the natural to what is experienced, and we project that upon God because Father was supposed to be that type of representative figure for us. But God isn't an absentee Father, and God always protects His own. God is always on the lookout for His own. You can't read the Bible and not see how God was always in action on behalf of His people. How God protected His people in many different situations and circumstances, whether it was individuals, whether it was the nation of Israel, whether it's the church, no matter what, God is always protecting his own. We see images throughout scripture that speak to kind of this uh, protective nature of God. He's called a shield. He's called a rock. He's called our fortress. These are kind of defensive things that we think about. But you think about going into a fortress, how it's fortified and how it's protecting you. And that's what God does for his people. God protects his own. As a good father would do. That's what we see as Esther is finally going to reveal who she is. As Esther is finally going to reveal Haman's plan, we are going to see how God has been working and how God is going to protect the people of Israel through the work of Esther and how his plan is now going to go into action. 
If you want to open your Bibles, you can follow us along digitally on the screen. We're going to start in Esther chapter 6. And then we're going to move from chapter 6 into chapter 7. <clears throat> and we're going to see basically two scenes. I like to call them scenes, Act 1 and Act 2. It's kind of like scenes in a movie in this passage that we're going to explore today. But let me set the stage for you because we're actually going to jump ahead quite a few verses in chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 14. But let me set the stage for you because this sets a little bit of the setting of what's going on. So remember in chapter 5 that Esther invites the king and Haman to a banquet, but she does not reveal Haman's plot at the time. She invites them then to a second banquet the next day. That night, in 24-hour period, remember when Haman is leaving the banquet, he sees the gallows and he wants to put into plan that he wants to murder Mordecai that night. He's drunk, he wants to murder Mordecai that night. That being said, what happens in that 24-hour waiting period? Why did Esther just not reveal who Haman was and reveal the plan at that time? Well, within 24 hours, we see that that night, if you read the text, the king could not sleep. And as he could not sleep, what he asked for, he asked for his servants to bring him something called the Book of Memorable Deeds. And this book was read to him, and he remembers that Mordecai has not been honored for saving his life. If we remember back just a few chapters ago, Mordecai overhears a plot to assassinate the king. He tells then who he needs to tell the officials. The officials then and the king investigate it, find it to be true, kill the two perpetrators that wanted to execute him. And yet, Haman is the one who is advanced. Haman is the one who gets the job promotion, so to speak. And it seems like Mordecai's forgotten at that time. Mordecai was never properly rewarded. Now, my, uh, my, app, my, my thought of this whole story is that if we took place in this today and somebody was preventing the assassination of the president, it'd be all over Twitter, it'd be all over the news, you'd get called to the White House, you'd get a medal, you'd get all this stuff, and, Haman, and Mordecai's not recognized at all. Yet that deed is recorded, and then all of a sudden in the middle of the night, in this 24-hour period, the king reads and hears about the deed. So what does the king do? In a scene dripping with irony, the king calls for Haman, and he tells Haman, he basically is asking him a rhetorical question. What should be done for somebody who's basically saved the life of the king? And Haman's like, well, you should put robes on him, you should take him on the horse, parade them in the city. He's thinking he's talking about him. Haman's like, oh man, he's going to just put all this pomp and circumstance. Come to find out, he's talking about Mordecai, and he says, do all that stuff you said, do it for Mordecai. Take Mordecai in the city, put my robes on him, give him the gold Mercedes-Benz chariot, parade him all around, go ahead and do it for him. Royal robes, royal crown, on the king's horse. Haman was going to ask the king to execute Mordecai, instead he has to parade him around. This brings us to the scene which we are going to read, which takes place at the second party, the second banquet, that Esther calls to have the king and Haman together. Look at chapter 6, starting in verse 14. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to the feast with Queen Esther. Verse 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, verse 2. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Here he is again basically saying, Let it made known. Here's a blank check. If there's anything in my power to do, I'll do it for you. Just tell me what you want done. So here's scene one in verse three. Starting in verse three, we see Esther's request in her reveal. 
Verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, if I had found favor in your sight, there's that word that continuously appears, it's appeared numerous times, and I want you to think of the word grace. If I had found grace in your sight, O king, and if it pleased the king, let my life be granted for me, my wish, and my people for my request. Here's her request, verse 4. For we, including herself, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So now it's confession time. Esther's finally admitted to the king. She's lumping herself in. She's saying we. She's, ad she's identifying herself with who she's going to reveal these people are. And the king's going to be like, well, what's the problem? Who's, what's happening that you're with these people and what's going on? She comes out of the cultural closet, so to speak. She could have basically kept that information to herself. And if she kept the information to herself, and if the edict had been actually executed, and all the Jews were executed, as Mordecai said, we can basically read between the lines, and I would agree with Mordecai, she wouldn't have been spared as well. But she could have at least, the, she could have at least in her mind thought that, you know what, I got enough of a relationship with the king, he likes me, that maybe uh, he'll, he'll pass me by. Or She didn't have to do anything about it. But she does. So instead of keeping that information secret, to save herself, she identifies herself with God's people who are afflicted and, God, and the coming attack that is going to come upon them. Here's a principle for you, and then I want to expand on this a little bit. Is that God does not need covert Christians. God is not looking for covert operatives. Maybe it's because I've been watching spy movies lately that I've been that I put that in there. But you understand what I mean by covert? The problem is, is that faith is something that's active, it's supposed to be lived out. Faith is not something that we just acquire this knowledge and then all of a sudden we do nothing about it. There should be enough evidence to accuse you that you're a Jesus follower. That's the reality of the matter. God's not looking for people who are ashamed of him. As a matter of fact, scripture actually, Paul tells us that if we are ashamed of him, that, we will, that Jesus will be ashamed will be ashamed before the Father. The reality is, is that God, when we live out faith, faith is something that's lived out loud. I don't have to be ashamed, nor should you have to be ashamed that you're a believer in Jesus. Don't ever be ashamed that you're a believer in Jesus. Just because you live in a world that is in constant conflict with the reality of what it means to be a person of faith and to be a scripturally based Christian, to be able to live your life in a way that would be pleasing to Jesus Christ, do not ever let that allow you to be ashamed of the reality of who you are. To wear the badge Christian means little Christ. I want to look more like Jesus. I hope that you want to look more like Jesus as well. God is not looking for his people to be silent. God is not looking for his people just to, this is where a misnomer comes into a lot of our Western Christianity. I'm about to blow something up real quick. Ready? A lot of people say, well, it's just me and Jesus. That's blatantly incorrect. The reality is, is that even though we personally have a relationship with Jesus, nothing can be seen apart from when you are in relationship with Christ, you are on mission and task for which Christ called you to. Christ called you out of something, called you into something. He called you out of darkness into light. 
He called you out of another family, of another kingdom, and put you into a family called the body of Christ. Your faith is not just about you. Your faith is for everybody else as well. That's what happens when Christians and believers actually live out their faith. That's why Jesus could say to his disciples, they will know me by the way you love one another. Because we act upon the faith that we say that we believe. God is not looking for covert Christians. Esther says that her people have been sold. Remember that the king was offered a bribe by Haman for the purposes of destroying the Jewish people. Ladies and gentlemen, every day in your life is not the same. There are moments in every person's life that hold a little bit more significance than others. Here's what I mean by that. There are moments and days in your life when you will be faced with decisions that can alter the very course of your life. The more influence, the more position that you might have, our decisions never affect just us. It goes to show you that the interconnectedness of what it means to be in relationship as the body of Christ. And what it means to be just human. God created us as relational beings. Our decisions never just affect us. Now as you, if you're a manager in a company, for example, or say, let's say you're the owner of a company. If you decide to sell your company, that's not just going to affect you, it's going to affect your employees as well. If you are a husband and you have a family, and you decide, or vice versa, if it's the wife, you decide to step out on your spouse, your decision is not going to just affect you, it's going to affect your whole entire family. And it's going to go outside the parameter of just your uh, family that lives under, in, uh, under your roof. It's going to affect other people as well. Our decisions are never made in a vacuum. God gives us an opportunity to make sometimes decisions that will have a direct impact on not only our lives, but the lives of those around us. Esther's decision had, will have a significant impact on not just her, but every person that she is called to represent at that moment. That's a lot, that's a weighty decision that she has to make. In the selfish nature of our own humanity, she could have tried to do whatever she wanted to do to save her own skin. But she makes a decision that can cost her everything. This was her defining moment. Listen to what the king says to her in verse 5. The king Ashuera said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, Remember, she's just putting it out there now, a foe and an enemy. This wicked Haman. Name drops. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. I would say so. That's an understatement. You just got called out, homie. Your plan just got exposed. You just got called out. So the big reveal comes. A bad day for Haman. He thinks he's going to dinner. And all of a sudden, justice is about to be served on a plate to him, and he doesn't know and understand. The king can no longer avoid the conflict, and this conflict has come to a head, and the king is faced with a decision. Remember, he has made an irrevocable edict that the Jews will be executed on this day, on the 12th month. This edict was because he trusted the counsel of his right-hand man. So on one side, you got your right-hand man, you got this irrevocable edict. On the other side, you have your queen who now tells you that basically she's part of the people to whom this edict is actually addressed. 
She is not the most Persian-eligible bachelor, but she's actually of Jewish descent. And now you have her on the other side when you could easily execute her and just get you another one if you wanted to. He's got a choice to make. Esther calling Haman a foe, an enemy, wicked, wicked. The king has to decide. And yet, she still doesn't know what the decision is at this moment. The king hasn't made the decision. We're in the middle of the tension of the story. The king hasn't made the decision yet. And yet, we're going to see how God protects his own. God is a vindicator. Look at verse 7. The story shifts, and we see the villain is defeated. Look at verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. He steps away. Goes into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. Haman now knows there's a real chance that he's on the chopping block as well. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Verse 8. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king says, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Man, this sounds like some mafia stuff right here. Like they covered his face and they just took him out. Right? Verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So Haman gets himself into a situation where because of his sin, because of his pride, now this man who was angry at a Jew who would not bow down before him is now bowing down before a Jew pleading for his life. This story just drips with irony. He's pleading for his life. The text doesn't tell us why the king turned away. For a split moment, the king turns away, goes to his palace garden, so he exits the room. Maybe to clear his head, whatever the case may be. The king exits the room. So as he exits, when he comes back, he had a little bit to drink. He misinterprets the actions of Haman. He thinks that Haman is trying to sexually assault his woman. So he sees Haman bowing down and begging her or whatever the case may be. We, we, we can just picture what is going on. Pleading for his life and the king thinks that Haman is trying to assault her. So the king returns just in time to accuse Haman of this sexual assault, which is a capital offense which allows him to rightfully execute Haman. Everything in this story happens for a reason. There's something worth noting here. Here's the connection I want to make. In this story, you have a king who's full of wrath against an enemy. It says that the king's wrath was against Haman, and that basically once he had given the, the plan to execute Haman, it says that his wrath abated. That basically means that his wrath calmed down, that his wrath was released. So here's an angry king who has a wrath against an enemy. And our God is a king who has been sinned against, and he has wrath against his enemies. But here's what's different. According to the scripture, before we, won't, before we come to Christ in faith, we are described by nature, Ephesians chapter 2, as children of wrath. When we come to Christ in faith, we are then adopted into his family. We are given the right to become children of God. 
we not only then bear the name, but we bear all of the benefit of what it means to be a child of God. You are part of the family of God because God has, as father, made you part of his family. He's adopted you. He's received you. And he hasn't received you as some second-rate citizen. He's received you with all the benefits of what it means to be son or daughter of the Most High God. He took you from one kingdom. He took you where your residency and your ownership was in one kingdom and now has placed you into his dear family. And he has called you son. He has called you daughter. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then what happens is that we move from the element of being under the wrath of God to then being in recipients of the grace of God. We are now recipients of his grace, of his love, of his mercy. We are recipients of salvation that is only gifted to us as a gift. We were his enemies. I know that's not going to sell a lot of, you know, that's not going to get a lot of play. But I can't tell you anything but the scriptural truth. The reality is, is that when we are outside of the family of God, whether it's directly or indirectly, we are enemies of God. We're enemies of God because we are sinners. And by nature, we do things that are not pleasing to God. We don't live in accordance with his character and with his nature. But God. That's where the kicker is. But God. Ephesians 2, 4. Two most grace-filled words in all scripture. If you remember when we, when we covered this passage. But God. God enters into the scene and takes those people who are children of wrath and makes us children of grace. Who takes those who are under the kingdom of darkness and brings us into the kingdom of light. Takes those who are the unrighteousness and makes us the righteousness of God in Christ. The one who knew no sin became sin for us to be our sin bearer so that he takes our sin so righteousness is credited to our account. We become children of the most high God. That is the work of our magnificent king. We're all, at one time, we were all Haman. We were selfish, we were proud, we were in it for ourselves. We lived with no concern for God. We didn't care, we wanted our own agenda. And the king in this story has a wrath that burns against his enemies. And this is not a perfect king. But our king is a perfect king. And our perfect king is the God who has perfect wrath who enacts perfect justice. King Jesus is a perfect king. And he will, in due time, enact perfect execution of justice on his enemies. And on the enemy. Because at the end, it's his kingdom. He's sovereign. It's all his. He has the authority. He has the power. When he executes his plan, when the kingdom finally comes in full, we live in the tension of the not yet. In some reality, the kingdom has come because Christ came incarnate. But we live in the tension of the not yet, the fullness of that kingdom. But when that sky cracks, and when he descends and he returns, and his kingdom is fully established, the reality of that kingdom, when we will be his people, he will be our God, and that kingdom descends, his perfect justice will be executed.
And ladies and gentlemen, if I'm honest, and I hope that this is the case for you, in some ways this should terrify you. Scripture actually says it. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 says this, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but can't kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. When we talk about the fear of God, I'm not talking about in a sense, I think it's a reduction to basically just say that means that we have reverence and awe of God. I think when it talks about that we fear God, we don't fear God like, okay, we're just afraid he's going to immediately strike us down, which he has the power to do. But I do think that it's a, real, a realistic acknowledgement of the extent of his power. And a realistic acknowledgement of the fact that I am creature, he is creator. I am finite, he is infinite. I'm not even on the same playing field as him. I'm not even in the same stratosphere. There is a very real reality where we need to come to God with respect and reverence. Jesus does call us friend. We can come to God with all our all in all. But then we also have to respect that he is holy other. He's not like your buddy that you call on the phone. He's perfect. He's powerful. He's beautiful. He's lovely. He's all of those things. That is what is so incredible about salvation. What's so incredible about salvation is that you and I deserve wrath. God is the jilted lover in the relationship. God is the one who's been wronged. And every day as I live in this flesh suit with my own self, I continuously wrong him. And yet every day I'm reminded of the truth and the reality of his magnificent grace. To sustain, to keep, to forgive, I am so grateful that we are not given what we deserve. The eternal life that you have in Christ is because it's a gift. It's a gift that God has extended to you. Every day that you wake up this side of heaven and you breathe a breath is the mercy of God. That God is the God we worship. We don't reduce God to a sum of a bunch of parts. And we don't reduce God to the characteristics that we think we like about him. He's as perfect as God is in love is as perfect as he is in justice. He never ceases to be loving or just in anything that he does because he's not a bunch of parts thrown together. You can't reduce him to that. God is in his nature and his totality of his being both just and loving in an incomparable and perfect way that we can never even begin to think about or articulate or express on a human level. Villains never prevail. I'm a superhero guy. I love a good superhero story. I love a good Marvel movie. I love a good DC movie. And it's funny because heroes may prevail for a season, but they never prevail in the end. I remember watching the Avengers, uh, the end game, uh, you know, watching the Thanos story, 
Now, I remember after the first movie, if you stood for the post-credits, they said, Thanos will return. Instead of saying whatever the hero was, they said, Thanos will return. But uh, he doesn't win in the end. The reality is, is that villains may prevail for a season. Our enemy seems like he prevails for a season, but at the end of the day, God is the one who protects his own, who deals with our enemies, who deals with the enemy of our souls. God is the one who will finally vanquish the enemy. It's very easy in our own human flesh to be people who want to have vengeance, who want to get revenge, who want to do things to hurt people that have hurt us. And at the end of the day, there's no way we can ever execute that imperfection because we're not meant to. Let God be your vindicator. Let God be your protector. Even on this side of heaven, the real reality is, is that sometimes we do have people who are enemies. I read the Psalms and I see David pray against his enemies for God's protection over and over again against his enemies. Because we understand that God protects his own. Don't you just love that about our Heavenly Father? He's a good dad. He protects his children. Why? Because he loves them. And in this story, I don't know how we've come to the point of this story, and you can't see God's hands all over it. God may never, the words may never be uttered. His name may never be uttered in this book, and yet God is all over it. God has worked out this plan, has protected his people, and then we are going to see next time we're together how the king is going to enact an edict that basically allows the Jews to be able to protect themselves, and then how God is going to vanquish the Persians. The king is going to allow his own people to get murdered. That doesn't make sense unless God is doing work. <laughs> and God is going to protect his people because God protects his own. Let's summarize this for you. So we saw in today's story basically kind of two scenes. Number one is we see that Esther finally comes out of the cultural closet. She makes her request known to the king that basically uh, our people are going to be executed. You need to do something about this. There is a foe, and she comes out. And as I said to you, my encouragement to you is that God doesn't need anybody to be covert Christians. We don't need to hide that we are people of faith. It doesn't mean we have to be belligerent, but it does mean that we live our faith out. We express it. We make decisions. We act upon what we truly believe. And then we saw that the villain was defeated. Haman receives the full extent of the king's wrath for the sin that he has committed. But we see a king who executes wrath against his enemies. And when we come before Christ, that's the position we were in. We were all Haman. And those in Christ, instead of receiving that wrath that we deserve, rather we receive salvation, grace, and mercy. And we receive eternal life as children of God. So how can we put this into practice? And we're going to pray. So my encouragement to you is that the scripture is chocked full of this idea of God being our protector. Here's a challenge to you. I'd encourage you to look at the back of your concordance of your Bible. If you own a physical Bible, or even if you pull one up digitally, you'll be able to find a concordance. There are so many different images, some of which I named even earlier, that God is our rock, that he's our refuge, that he's our shield. All of these ideas that basically are protective, defensive kind of ideas. They're images that we ascribe to God that speak to the nature of his character. 
it would be a very worthwhile study for you if you ran across verses, even in your own time this week, whatever you're reading, and that you would just highlight those and just write them down as ways to go back and just say, God is my protector, God is my rock, God is my shield about me, he is my ever-present help in time of need. And you just start coaching yourself, you start just telling yourself and speaking that truth, that reality when you need it. So that way when the enemy does come, because he will, you can remind him that God is your protector. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you that you are a good father, that you are our protector, you are the shield about us, you are the one who watches over your people. And Lord, as we read this story, I'm just so taken back by the reality of how you've been working, working behind the scenes and then how you are then displaying your power into human history, how you're working in this situation. As Esther then goes in courage and faith and she goes before the king and finally presents the accusation and, and tells of Haman's wicked plan, you enact then your plan, which has been your plan all along. Lord, you always watch over your people, just like you did over the nation of Israel. You kept your promises to them. No matter how many times they would forsake you, you always were the God who was the covenant keeper when they were covenant breakers. And you consistently came back and you consistently fulfilled your end of be keeping the covenant. And Lord, even for us as New Testament believers, as part of the church, Lord, we know that individually and corporately and many times, Lord, we are faithless. We don't act in faith. And yet you are consistently faithful toward us because you extend your hand toward us. You give us the gift of salvation as an expression of your grace and your love. You have transferred our residency from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your dear son. Thank you that those who were once children of wrath, if they have placed their faith and trust in you, then Lord, we are now sons and daughters of the most high God. But God, the two most grace-filled words in all of scripture, thank you that you didn't leave us where we were at, but your love compelled you in some way foreign and mysterious to us to die upon a cross for our sins. Thank you that we can have a relationship with you today and that we can know you as Abba. So Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in the most precious and holy name of Jesus that we can pray by the power of the Spirit. Amen. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward. We're going to take an opportunity to worship and to pray. You know, every Sunday if you're part of this church, that we take an opportunity to pray for whatever needs may come. This is a way that we show love toward one another. It's a way that we care for one another. So I'd encourage you during this song, if you have any uh, prayer needs, then please come forward and allow us to be able to pray with you. And if you're in the congregation, I'd encourage you, if you want to stand, you can stand to worship. You don't have to. But this is a time for us. Uh, wrestle with what maybe you, God's been tugging on your heart in relationship to this message. But I want you to this is not spectator time. This is a time for us to engage with God and engage with what we heard and allow the Spirit to do His work. So let's take an opportunity to worship and to pray.
is our price Drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking And heaven meets earth, I cannot foreseen Kiss in my heart turns violently inside of my chest I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I Take a minute, just 30 seconds. Just pause. Let his love wash over you today. glad that you decided to worship with us this morning. Uh, we'd love to be able to shake your hand, give you a hug, tell you a little bit about what's going on at the church and see how we can serve you and your family. So there's a QR code behind me. You can scan that or you can grab one of these physical connection cards. Please make sure to visit our connection center. Um, and one of our guest services attendants would just love to be able to give you a special gift for worshiping with us and just answer any questions you might have and just say hello. And so we're going to worship the Lord through giving now. So I'm just going to pray over the offering uh, and just ask God's blessing upon that. So Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to uh, utilize uh, a tangible, physical thing that you have given us, money, uh, to be able to use it for the sake of your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, that you provide all of our needs individually and corporately. And we pray that you would take this offering, that you would cause it to multiply, Lord, that we may use it for the furtherance of the gospel through the ministry here at Firewall Bible Fellowship. Help us to steward well and to honor you through it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, and welcome to Firewall Bible Fellowship, where we strive to be Christ-centered and gospel-focused. Here's what's happening at Firewall. Our final session of Couples Talk has been moved to February 22nd. Firewheel Youth will continue to meet on Wednesday nights, and our regular schedule for Wednesday night programming will begin again March 1st. Parents, need a night out? Drop off the kids in the Children's Building this Friday from 6 to 8.30 p.m. 
and go out on a date or get some much needed self time. There will be pizza, indoor games, outdoor games, popcorn, and a movie for the kids. There's no set cost for this event, but we will be taking donations that will go towards sending kids to camp. February 12th, join us for a special event as we welcome Pastor Joe Allen, chaplain at Dallas Theological Seminary, as our guest speaker at our 11 a.m. service. Sunday, February 26th, immediately following the service, will be an important meeting to give updates to our Firewheel family. There will not be childcare for this event, so all of our attendees can come. Parents, plan on some snacks and coloring pages for the little ones. For more info on these or any of the events going on around Firewheel, check us out at firewheelfellowship.com slash events, or you can find us on social media. All right, guys, if you'll stand. <laughs> All right, guys, if you'll stand, we'll go ahead and pray our benediction and get you dismissed. Uh, look forward to being with you all next week as uh, Chaplain Joe. You're going to really, really enjoy him. And he has a connection here to Firewheel as well. And so I look forward to worshiping with you guys and getting to hear and hang out with Pastor Joe next week. So we'll pick up Esther the following week after that and uh, look forward to that. So may the Lord go before you to light the path and give you direction. May he go behind you to guide your steps. May he go beside you to keep you from stumbling. May he go above you to protect you. And may he go within you to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. And may our Father in heaven always grant you character that is greater than your gifts and humility that is greater than your influence. God bless you guys. We love you all so much. You are dismissed. We'll see you next week. Mm.